Well, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 11 this morning. You can find it on page 909 in the Pew Bibles there. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we want to give you a Bible. So back at the welcome table, we have Bibles that are there for you. Please take one. Uh, we want you to, to have access to the Word of God. And so please, that's our gift to you for being here with us this morning. We're, uh, we're continuing our study through the book of Acts. We're going to go all the way through it eventually. This is now just sermon number two. But to get our time started here, I want to pose a few questions to get us thinking. Why are we here? I mean, why, why do we do what we do? Why do we gather together? What's our purpose? What's our mission? Why do we, we gather for worship? Have you ever considered why Christ instituted the church and then just left it? Right? It's just like as if to say, well, my work here is done, at least my earthly work, and so I'm going to go, but I'll be back again. In the meantime, you just keep doing what you're doing. And we're like, great. What is that? Because after 2,000 years, it's kind of easy to get that confused. What are we to be about? What are we to be doing? We know that we're supposed to be doing something, and we know that we're supposed to be doing that something in his name, but what exactly is that? Now, in an effort to do what, what we're supposed to be doing in the name of Christ, individual Christians and, and uh, entire churches can gravitate towards one of two extremes. I call them the social worker on one hand or the speculative waiter on the other. Now, the social worker, in a well-intended, well-meaning effort, devotes themselves towards acts of love and charity, everything from like offering a cup of cold water in Jesus' name to doing great things like building orphanages and schools and, and homes for people. These are good and wonderful things. The idea here is to build the kingdom of God here on earth, to see restoration, to see renewal, to see change, um, to affect our community and society, or, or maybe it's just simply to be one nation under God, so that love and unity are displayed as we seek the well-being of our city or our culture. The focus is toward the earth. The gaze is here, towards the here and now. Our, our mission is to be one nation under God, or our mission is to be, uh, to improve the quality of life through acts of love for other people in Jesus' name. And the, that becomes the impetus, that becomes the drive for why we do everything that we do. It's the kingdom here. Now the other group, that's the social worker, the other group, that's the speculative waiter. This guy, he's just a little bit more pessimistic, or should we say realistic, about the world that we live in, right? He's not blind. He can see things are getting a whole lot worse, and so things are getting bad. We just kind of have to bare our teeth and just hope that Jesus is going to come back soon. That becomes the goal. This group tends to have a holy huddle mentality, thinking to ourselves, you know, we are the kingdom, or the kingdom is yet to come, but we're the kingdom, but they're not the kingdom. And so we just need to separate ourselves. We just need to remove ourselves and kind of hunker down and wait it out. Our mission is to remain pure. Our mission is to lose none that the Father has given us. And maybe possibly to determine the day or hour of Christ's return. And ironically, we spend most of our money just telling of that mission of when the day and hour of Christ will, will be here. And basically, you can take that, leave that, but turn or burn. Now, so far, that strategy hasn't proven very effective. Even in my own lifetime, I have survived a number of imminent returns of Christ. Perhaps I and all of you and even those people who predicted it were left behind. Most Christians, most churches, they tend to lean towards one of those two extremes. 
either focusing on ushering in the kingdom of God through good deeds, through politics, through social justice, or this idea of a distantly heavenly kingdom to come in power, and all we can really do is just knuckle down and survive until then. You see, it's either kingdom here or kingdom come. Well, friends, how we view the kingdom of God and our own responsibilities as followers of Christ will impact the mission of the church. It's going to impact what we do and why we are here. And though good lessons can be learned from both of these positions, neither of them is completely correct. Neither of them is totally accurate. So if we want to know why we're here, if we want to understand our mission as the church, we need to look to God's Word. And there's perhaps no better place for us to look than the text that we're going to look at this morning, Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. These are Jesus' final earthly words to his disciples before he ascends into heaven. It's not his only words that he'll ever speak to his people, but this is the last time they're gathered together, seeing him face to face. So last words are important words. We need to hear these words and accept these words and and learn what Jesus is going to teach us. And what we're going to see from this text is that the kingdom of God will be proclaimed in power until Christ comes again. That's the message that he's going to show us from this text. All who are in Christ have received the power of the Holy Spirit to bear witness to his kingdom to the ends of the earth until he comes again, until it is fully and finally realized. We, in other words, have been empowered to bear witness to the mission of Christ. So what we're going to see again from Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11 is that the kingdom of God will be proclaimed in power until he comes again. So let's read the passage, but for context, I want us to begin in verse 1. So Acts chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. The kingdom of God will be proclaimed in power until he comes again. Now, we need to think about that statement very carefully because it has huge implications for us and what we do. So I want us to look at this statement in parts. So first, what is the kingdom of God? When you hear that word kingdom, what comes to mind? I always think of castles and realms and knights and kings and queens, right? Usually when we hear that word kingdom, we think of some political, earthly power. And that's what the disciples are doing right there in verse 6. Jesus had just been speaking of the kingdom of God in verse 3. It's one of the major themes of his mission. It comes up many, many, many times throughout the Gospels. And he tells them in verses 4 and 5 to wait in Jerusalem. That's the capital of the kingdom of Israel until the promised Holy Spirit has come upon them. And so it's only natural then that they would ask him the question when they had come together, will you now at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? I mean, they're thinking to themselves, great, this is it, right? This is what we've been waiting for. This is all that Jesus has been teaching about with regards to the kingdom come. It's finally here. It's going to happen, right? It's going to happen now, right? 
But their question indicates that they still misunderstood what Jesus had been teaching. And they, their misunderstanding in this question can be seen in three different ways. First of all, they asked the Lord, will you at this time? See, they're looking for an immediate kingdom. They're looking to Jesus for their best life now. Does that sound familiar at all? Have you ever wished that, that Jesus would give you the blessings of the kingdom right here and right now without waiting for it? See, we can identify with where they're coming from. Second, they asked, will you restore? See, they were looking for a past physical kingdom. They wanted to go back to the way that things once were. Have you ever wanted that? Have you ever just wanted to go back to the glory days and just live it up? You know, when times were good, when you hadn't experienced that loss, all you do is want that thing back that you had before. And third, they asked, will you restore the kingdom of Israel? They were looking for a geopolitical, they were looking for an ethnic kingdom. They were looking to Jesus for their own idea of the kingdom. Whether that be one nation under God or a kingdom that suited their preferences, their wants, their needs, that benefited them the most. But the kingdom of God is not immediate. It's not physical. It's not limited by boundaries or spatial dimensions or personal preferences. The kingdom of God is spiritual, it's universal, and it's gradual. Now, some people want to argue here, well, Jesus didn't, didn't rebuke them, right? It's not, he said, no, I'm not going to restore the kingdom of Israel, therefore he's going to restore the kingdom of Israel. But friends, that's an argument from silence, right? He didn't say that he wouldn't, but he also didn't say that he would. It would be like if my kids came up to me and they said, hey, hey, daddy, can we have a puppy for Christmas? And I said to them, listen, kids, Christmas is going to be here really soon. And just trust me on this. It is going to be better than you can imagine. Now, I didn't say I was going to give my kids a puppy for Christmas, but they can imagine in their minds that this puppy for Christmas is a pretty great thing. They can't imagine much better. But I never said I was going to get them a puppy. Instead, what we see throughout the Gospels in the book of Acts is that Jesus challenges their notions. He challenges their expectations. They thought that Christ was going to be a conquering king who would deliver Israel from all of her enemies. Yes, he does that. But what they didn't understand was that he's also God made flesh who suffered to pay the ransom for sin that all people deserved so that people, God's people, from every point in time and everywhere on the map might be restored to him. They thought that the people of Israel were God's chosen people. That's not wrong. But throughout the New Testament, we see that not all who are from the line of Abraham we're truly of Israel, but those who are in Christ, the true Israel, they are God's people. The temple, seat of worship for the people of Israel, more than a building. In fact, it is the body of Christ who came to dwell with his people. And the kingdom of God is not a physical kingdom. It is the spiritual reign of Christ in the hearts of his people and throughout the cosmos. When you hear that word kingdom of God, you have to think about a rule and a reign, a dominion and a dynasty as God rules over all things and rules over the hearts of his people. That is the kingdom of God. And so don't think in terms of cities or national borders or military campaigns as if we took this city and then we took that city and we took that city. We took control of that country and then that one over there until we established military dominion over the entire world or at least until we reclaim what had been lost. We're not playing Axis and allies here. Think in terms of overcoming darkness. To see Christ rule in one heart, and then another, and then another, and then another, until this kingdom that is fixed by God's own authority has been established among 
people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation throughout the world. The New Testament makes it clear that our concern is not for physical kingdoms, but spiritual kingdoms. And in terms of spiritual kingdoms, there are really only two. The New Testament clearly presents two. We could look at Ephesians. We could look at Colossians to establish this. There is the kingdom of Christ, sometimes called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And there's the kingdom or the domain of darkness. And we all are citizens of one or the other. I want you to understand that this morning. You came here today, you are a citizen of one spiritual kingdom or another. Either the domain of darkness or you have been delivered, you have been transferred by the grace of God into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of your sin. Only those two kingdoms. There's a lot of passages we could look at to establish this, but one that shows it very well is Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. If you want to turn there, it's page 981. Here the Apostle Paul is speaking to the Philippians, and he says, For many of whom I have told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. They live in the domain of darkness. You understand you are either a friend of Christ, you either love Christ, or you are an enemy of the cross of Christ. It's only two ways. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. This is how he describes them. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. There we see that that universal lordship of Christ over all things. Friends, you have got to understand this this morning. You are a part of one kingdom or another. You were born into it. And the question becomes, is that God's kingdom or is that this domain of darkness where you live and breathe, but yet your end is destruction, your God is your belly, you glory in your shame, and you set your mind on the things of this world. We all have a choice to make which kingdom we're going to reside in. So the kingdom of God, it's not a physical kingdom, but it's a spiritual kingdom. It's also not a geopolitical or an ethnic kingdom. It's a universal kingdom. The mission is so much bigger than your family, than your idea of a kingdom, your idea of a church, your idea of a government that votes the way that you want it to. God's plan has always been bigger than the chosen nation of Israel. I mean, there's a lot of passages, again, we can look at, but a few examples to consider is this. One, just right at the very beginning, all nations have the same first parents, Adam and Eve. We all have the same origins. That ought to level the playing field quite a bit as we continue to think about this. Another thought is that even though God chose Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, what we see is that the nations were going to receive the blessing from God's choice of Abraham. He says to Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Another example, Isaiah 49, verse 6, where God said, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. That's the restoration of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation should reach to the end of the earth. And Luke picks that up at the very beginning of his gospel account in Simeon's blessing of the infant Jesus. In Luke 2.32 where Simeon says of Jesus, you will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And now here we have 
In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the risen Christ now commissioning his disciples to bear witness to his name in Jerusalem, which they would have been like, yes. In Judea, okay, yes, they're among us. In all Samaria, whoa, wait. We hate the Samaritans because they are half-breeds. They have whored themselves out to the Gentiles. They have abandoned you. And to the ends of the earth, what do we have in common with them? What do we know of them? You see, his idea has always been far, far bigger than the tiny nation of Israel, even in its heyday. You see, here's where Israel went wrong. Israel kind of thought them being a light to the nations was like them being the sun and the nations being planets. Right? And that they could shine their light upon the planets. The planets could receive the blessing of the light. They could look at the sun and they could see, wow, that sun is really, really great. But we are not the sun. We're planets and we're never going to be the sun. And they thought also that God would make the sun big enough that it would consume all the planets, that it would burn them all up. And then all that would be left was the sun. And so that's what they were thinking it meant to be a light to the nations. They couldn't imagine that God would ever include the planets as the sun, but God is saying, I am going to make it possible for them to become part of that light too. You see, being a light to the nations is not just being nice. It's not just doing nice things that bless other people, but they're over there and we're over here and there's no possibility that they can ever kind of come and be with us. It's not this idea of like, let's set ourselves apart and be really pure and really holy so that they can come in and they can kind of look from the outside and see, wow, those people are really great. They're really holy and they're really pure and, and I can never be among them. I can never be one of them. That's not their point, right? Being a light to the nations is about revealing. It's about showing. It's about teaching so that God might work in their hearts to bring them into the kingdom that we too are a part of, to allow them to become one of the people that we have now become a part of, to bring them into God's family, which is our family, so that they might be with us so that we all might be with him. All God's people in God's place under his rule and blessing. God is not concerned about this false notion of a Christian nation. We have plenty of examples in history to prove that even the notion of Christian nations rise and fall. Geneva did not work out for John Calvin. Germany did not work out for Martin Luther. The English Reformation's end was marked in many ways by the Anglican Church becoming the state church of England. So here we have this idea that the government is so on board with the idea of the church that they're saying, okay, we're with you. We like this idea of a, a Christian nation so much so that you can actually take our name and put it on yours. You can be the church of England. That didn't work out very well for them either. No, God hasn't set his hope on the ideal Christian nation. And neither should we, at least not in geopolitical terms, right? God rules and reigns over all, over all the nations. And even more than all the nations, God rules over stars and planets. God rules over the entire cosmos. As it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, that God the Father has seated the resurrected Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, and not only in this age, but also in the one that is to come. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And not only that, but he has a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. That is the kingdom of God that we seek. 
No silly idea of a Christian nation. That is the kingdom of God that we proclaim, a spiritual, universal kingdom. And God in his wisdom, in his kindness, in his good and gracious purposes for us, has made that kingdom a gradual kingdom. Now, God did not have to do this. He snapped his fingers, bam, done. But God made it a gradual kingdom. His disciples were hoping that this would be the time in which God's kingdom had come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. But Jesus responded in verse 7, It is not for you to know the times and seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. This kingdom has been fixed by the Father's authority. Just as all times and all seasons, it has already been ushered in at the coming of King Jesus, but it will not be fully realized until he comes again to judge the world. Jesus began his public ministry, Mark chapter 1, with these words. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He's saying, the kingdom is near because I, the king, am here. And you want to enter into the kingdom of God? Here's how you do it. Repent of your sin and believe in the gospel. Jesus taught that the kingdom would come in almost unnoticed and that it would grow until it reached maturity, until it reached that full measure by which the Father has fixed by his own authority. He describes it as a mustard seed. He says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Jesus also verified the coming of the kingdom through miracles and wonders that he performed. After casting out a demon, one of the religious leaders slandered him by saying, it's by the power of the devil that you cast out demons. And Jesus responded to him, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, and it was, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God is here. It's present. And the Holy Spirit, His power, His work, proves it. And yet, Jesus also said that His kingdom is not of this world. That His kingdom is a heavenly kingdom. It's a coming kingdom. It's a future kingdom. Said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So what does that mean for us, right? I mean, it means this. It's not our job to build the kingdom, to advance the kingdom, to usher in the kingdom, or to seek to determine the times and seasons of the kingdom that he has fixed by his own authority. And so why then? Why do we get so caught up in those things? Why do we get so caught up in the idea that we can actually do something that is going to bring in the kingdom or make the kingdom present here on earth? Or why do we get caught up on this, this, this infatuation with the times and seasons of Christ's return? Why do we gravitate towards one of those or the other? Well, one, we desire an immediate kingdom. We want, as Calvin said, to triumph before the battle. We want it to be easy. We want it to be immediate. We want it to cater to our convenience. No sacrifice, no hardship, no suffering required. No perseverance needed. We want a tangible, physical kingdom. We want to know... We want to taste and touch and feel that the kingdom of God is better than what he's asking me to give up. Because if I pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, it means my kingdom doesn't come and my will doesn't get done. And so I want to know, I want to know it's better than what I'm trying to carve out with my life. 
We want this kingdom with boundaries that suit our preferences, that meet our wants and our needs, that appeals to people that are just like me, rather than submitting my idea of the kingdom to God's design and God's purposes, which he is fixed by his own authority. Again, I'm wanting my kingdom or a version of my kingdom rather than his. We want to make it about our activities, what we do, or what we know. We know the time and the seasons because like the disciples, we want to hold key seats in the kingdom. Or at least we want confirmation that we're in. And so if I do these good things, then I know that I'm in. If I have these experiences, then I know that I'm in. If I can determine the day or the hour and I can wait for that, then I know that I'm in. But all that we're looking for or all that we're looking to is ourselves and not to him. We focus on the wrong things because we want a faith that does not require trust and obedience. A faith that does not require suffering or sacrifice or perseverance. In other words, we want a faith that requires no faith. Why are you looking for the kingdom of God? Are you looking for a spiritual, universal kingdom gradually to be realized as Christ becomes king in the hearts of his people? Is that what you're wanting? Or are you wanting something else? Are you perhaps looking to God for the kingdom blessings apart from his kingdom rule? Do you want the kingdom to be comprised of your people in your place rather than his? See, if you get the kingdom of wrong, wrong you're going to get the purpose of our lives wrong. And we're going to miss out the true joy and blessing and fulfillment in our hearts when we see and understand that God's kingdom is here and it is being realized. You'll end up spinning your wheels in a mission that Christ did not intend and land in a place that he never intended for you to go. So now that we know a little bit more about what Christ meant when he spoke of the kingdom of God, we can now better understand our mission. And our mission is this, the kingdom of God, second, will be proclaimed in power. At the center of a kingdom is a king. You get that right. It's not a kingless kingdom where we get all of the stuff of the kingdom, but the king is not there. At the center of the kingdom is a king. And you can't make Jesus the king of anyone's hearts, no matter how hard you try. I can tell you this from personal experience because I've been trying it for a long time. It hasn't worked out yet. No amount of love or charity will convince them of his lordship. Cutting yourself off from the world will not teach them who Jesus is or what he has done. Threatening the coming of his kingdom with calculated dates or signs in the heavens like super blood moons might cause them pause for a moment as they reflect upon their readiness to come face to face with Jesus. But what does that do with their hearts the day after that prediction is come and gone? Deliverance from the domain of darkness that transfers us into the kingdom of God's beloved Son is a supernatural work. You and I can't do it. Your good work and your righteousness, it won't redeem anyone. Only Christ's good work and his perfect righteousness. You are not Jesus, and you cannot be Jesus to them. Right? You can proclaim Jesus, you can reflect the character of Jesus, you can be conformed into the image of Jesus, but you cannot incarnate Jesus. You can't be Jesus to them. And so he doesn't call us to be social workers or speculative waiters. He calls us to be saved witnesses those who have been redeemed by his blood to proclaim his name. 
He said in verse 7, it's not our business to know the times and seasons that God has fixed by His own authority. Instead, in verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That is our mission to bear witness to Christ. Not who we are and what we do. That's not what we bear witness to. We bear witness to who He is and what He has done. That is our mission. We, His church, are His witnesses. And we are to continue the mission that Christ began of proclaiming His kingdom. And we do that until the King returns again in glory. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is the thesis statement for the entire book of Acts. Everything in the book of Acts is organized and flows out of this verse. The focus of the whole book is on the themes of bearing witness to Christ and to do that in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the story unfolds first in Jerusalem in Acts chapters 1 through 7, and then in Judea and Samaria in Acts chapters 8 through 12, and then to the ends of the earth in Acts 13 through 28 with Paul's missionary journeys to the Gentiles, which ends in Rome. Not that Rome itself is the end of the earth, but Rome was the head and the heart of the entire Roman Empire is the gateway to the rest of the world. And if you want to strike a blow to the entire body, where do you go? You strike the head, you strike the heart. And everything is affected. So that by the time you reach the end of the book of Acts, it's not that we see that the mission has been fulfilled, but that the mission is being fulfilled. That's what we're left with. The church is bearing witness to Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It's happening, and yet it's still ongoing. The book of Acts ends with Paul under house arrest in Rome, but it states that he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The witness to the mission of Christ continues. Now, what does it mean to be a witness to Christ? Is it caring for the poor and needy? Is it healing the sick? Is it showing charity and acts of love? I mean, we do see those things happen in the book of Acts that's consistent with the character of Christ. Is it displayed in waiting on the Lord in holy conduct, in purity, in being of one accord? Well, we see that in the book of Acts as well. Again, that's consistent with who Jesus is. What about miracles and prophecy and speaking in tongues? I mean, they're there. Right? They did serve to bear witness to Christ in the book of Acts. And even more than that, there's just the, the reality that if you profess faith in Jesus Christ, you're bearing witness to Christ. Your witness may be false. It may be a poor witness, but nevertheless, if you profess faith in Christ, guess what? Your life is bearing witness to Christ. But these are not the primary ways we witness to Christ. They are, and they certainly were a part of that witness. Character and evidence of the life-transforming power of the gospel are necessary parts of our gospel witness. But these are not the primary ways we bear witness. We bear witness through words. Not in word only, right? But in word. We all, they need to see our character. They need to see our convictions. They need to see that our conduct aligns with our words. But if they are missing, if the words are missing, we discredit, or, or I, I should say, if our, if our life doesn't match our doctrine, then we do discredit, but we don't nullify our witness. And yet, if our words are missing, then we are at best virtuous people. And that is not going to save anyone. So don't think of it as an either-or. Think of it as a both-and, but with the emphasis being on the Word. Now, throughout the book of Acts, we see the Word of God explicitly mentioned in reference to proclamation 35 times. We see teaching 22 times, the word witness as a verbal testimony, as a declaration 20 times. The word proclaim appears 18 times. Good news of the gospel is stated 12 times. The kingdom of God is proclaimed 8 times. 
The biblical scholar Joseph Fitzmaier counts 28 speeches in the book of Acts. Eight are tied to Peter, 10 are tied to Paul. And probably my favorite statistic of all is this, that out of the almost 300, uh, almost 300 of the nearly 1,000 verses in the book of Acts are speech material, and almost all of that are sermons. The rest is narrative. You see, proclaiming the word is central to the book of Acts. Bearing witness to the mission of Christ dwarfs every other theme that you'll see in the book of Acts. And every other theme that you see in the book of Acts is meant to support, it's meant to build up, it's meant to verify the proclamation of the word. Bearing verbal witness to Christ is the objective of our mission. Now, if you still want to quibble over words and say, well, Jesus was speaking to his disciples who were eyewitnesses of all that he said and all that he did, so they're the only ones that can really bear witness to him, I would point you to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and a dozen other places in the book of Acts alone, and say that we bear witness by devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching. We bear witness by bearing witness to their witness. And where do we do that? The extent of our mission, according to verse 8, is to the ends of the earth. In all Jerusalem, and all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Again, don't think about this in terms of successive geographical stages. Like first, our first mission is to Champaign-Urbana. Got to reach Champaign-Urbana. Now, once we've reach, reached Champaign-Urbana, then we're going to think about Illinois, and then we're going to think about the United States after that, and then after that, we'll think about foreign countries. That's not the point. No, we need to think it, it, of it in terms of bearing witness to Christ here, there, and everywhere. Okay? The gospel is meant to have a centrifugal Force It propels outward. I know that's a big word, but you, you know that, that merry-go-round at the playground? That, well, you can't find them at playgrounds anymore because they're dangerous. But, you know, when I was a kid, we had these merry-go-rounds, right? And you could ride on them, and it was fun, and it'd spin around and around and around. But then something would happen. Big kids would come, and they would get on the outside of that, and they would begin to spin it and spin it and spin it faster and faster. And so what started happening? You're starting to... F- to slide backwards until at last you're hanging on with your feet flying out on the side and the only way to come to a stop is to kick one of the big kids right in the gut. I'm not speaking from personal experience or anything. That's centrifugal force. That's the force of the gospel. It propels outward. The Great Commission is to make disciples of all nations, and that's not only fulfilled when we go to the nations, but as we go. As you go here and there and everywhere, what do you do? You make disciples of all nations. This is what compelled Paul to make it his ambition to preach Christ where he had not yet been named, but in the meantime, what's he doing? He's preaching Christ wherever he went. It's not like he didn't just shut his mouth until he got to where he wanted to go. It was here, there, and everywhere. But there's another way we need to think about the extent of this mission. We are to bear witness to Christ to all peoples. We preach an impartial gospel without any bias toward others. You see, those in Jerusalem and even in Judea, they were a lot like the disciples. That was easy. They look like me, talk like me, into the same things that I'm into. It's easy to go and and talk to them. But those Samaritans, those guys are impure. They're half-breeds. They've hoarded themselves out to the world. They've denied you. They're not anything like me. To go to them and to the ends of the earth? Are you kidding me? What do we have in common with them? 
We don't even speak the same language. We're not the same skin color. We don't have the same education. We don't have the same economy. We don't have the same background. We don't have the same culture. We don't have the same anything. And yet, that's where we're to take it. We're to take the gospel to all, to anyone and everyone, to people we don't associate with. We are to go out of our way to spend ourselves, to sacrifice ourselves for people who are completely unlike us. Now, why? Have you ever asked this question? I find that the older I get, the more I like to ask the question, why? And the more I like to see the way that God answers it. Why would Jesus call us to all the nations? here, there, and everywhere, to all peoples, everywhere. Why would Christ call his chosen, of the chosen people of Israel, to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth? Because they couldn't be further removed from him. Well, friends, it's because Christ is king over all. He's not just king over you, over me, over the nation of Israel. He's the king over all, over every power and dominion, every rule, every authority, every name that is named in heaven and on earth and under the earth and everything in between. He's king over all. And so he alone is worthy of all their praise. We take the gospel to them because of who he is. Because they need to understand that he is the one who made them. He is the one who sustains their lives. They can breathe because he makes it possible. He is the one who causes rains to fall from the heavens. He is the one who fills their hearts with food and with gladness. Everything that they have is from him. And they need to understand not only that, but he is the one who has come and lived a perfect life and given up that perfect life by dying on a cross for sin so that they might be reconciled to have eternal bliss, to have eternal happiness, to have eternal satisfaction forever. Something that they could not earn, something that they could not deserve, something that they can barely even fathom because we can barely even fathom it. But that's who he is because of who he is. Jesus is king over all and he is worthy of the praise of all the nations. Friends, that is why we go. Take the gospel to everyone and everywhere because Christ is king. That is what we bear witness to. We bear witness to him who is worthy of all the nations. Friends, we don't do that in our own power. Verse 8 tells us not only will we be witnesses to Christ to everyone and everywhere, but we will receive power for that mission. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Now, we can't separate that power from that missionary enterprise. It's not like he's saying, okay, you're going to receive the power of the Holy Spirit, and then, oh, also, by the way, you're going to be witnesses. No, it's, it's the power for the mission. You receive power, and what does that do? It compels you towards bearing witness to Christ. So what is this power? Is it some energy? Is it some divine strength? Is it some superhuman force or magical ability to heal or to tell the future that makes you feel like you are godlike? No. That word power is a very, very broad word. It means everything from divine power, like God's divine power to part seas, to create power that describes military force all the way down to strength, to ability, to capability. Like, I'm able to hold this pen. I have the power to hold this pen. I think it's better to understand that what Jesus is saying here 
is that the Holy Spirit will equip you to do what Christ has called you to do. You and I, we can't change hearts. We can't cause someone to see the futility of living the life that they're living in sin and that there is truly hope in Jesus Christ. We can't cause someone to to put their trust in Christ. We can't regenerate anyone's hearts to bring them into conviction for their sin, to bring them to a knowledge of the truth of the gospel and a desire to follow after Jesus. Acts chapter 5 verse 32 tells us that the Holy Spirit bears witness alongside us, that he is the one that is bearing witness to the effect that it leads them to obey Christ. It's the Holy Spirit who brings into remembrance all that we have been taught so that we can declare it with clarity, with truth, and with conviction. It's the Holy Spirit who emboldens us to then go and to preach the gospel in the face of persecution and fear, who gives validity to the truth claims through inward and outward evidence of his activity. It is the Holy Spirit who speaks through his word and power. It is the Holy Spirit who comforts us in our affliction. It is the Holy Spirit who gives us assurance that the mission of Christ will not fail. And he gives it right here in the this verse because Jesus says under the power of the Holy Spirit you will receive power and you will be my witnesses and that is exactly what happens. That word power doesn't mean that you're going to feel strong. You're going to feel powerful, feel like you have it all together, and that you're just going to zap people with your Holy Spirit power. As if you can stomp your feet and heal people and they come to Jesus. The apostles were afraid, they felt weak. But the Holy Spirit equipped them to do what He had called them to do. You know, when I was in India, I was asked to teach a group of pastors on the Christian life. Spend an entire day teaching them about the Christian life, and I had maybe three hours to prepare. Just get up and go. Now, I did not feel ready, but the Holy Spirit made me able. Later in that same trip, I was asked to go to regions where the gospel had not gone, to help church planters begin a new work, to evangelize the lost and to encourage believers as we went. And, and I got asked just in the process, they, they would turn and they would ask me to preach. And it's happened like 10 times a day. No prep time, right? Just go. And a lot of times, given the context, I couldn't even use my Bible. I had to quote from memory. I didn't feel powerful. I didn't feel ready. I didn't feel adequate. But he used it. I got to preach the gospel to hundreds. I got to encourage dozens of brothers and sisters in Christ. But even better than that was that I got to see more clearly than any other point in my life that the Holy Spirit equips you to do what he has called you to do. I'm here today as a church planter because of that event. Friends, if you are in Christ, you are not powerless for his mission. You may feel powerless, but that is simply because the power was never yours to begin with. It is the power of the Holy Spirit bringing the word of God to bear upon the hearts and minds of those who both proclaim and those who hear that gives life, that transforms hearts, that leads people to follow Jesus. And if you are in Christ, then this promise is for you. You will receive holy power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be his witness to the very ends of the earth. And so the kingdom of God will be proclaimed in power third until he comes again. And I'm just going to be here briefly. 
We could spend a lot of time on verses 9 through 11, but I just want to focus on two aspects of the ascension as it pertains to our mission. It is both a promise and it's a prompt. It reads, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come again in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Friends, this is a promise that Jesus will indeed return again in the same way that he went. That his kingdom will be established in power. This is not some symbolic, poetic attempt that Luke makes to explain a very ordinary event like the disappearance of Jesus, as if to say that Jesus kind of disappeared into the fog, and then some some guys randomly showed up and said, well, I guess he's not here anymore. You should probably get to talking about him. It's not the point. No, this is a history of the eyewitness account of many. Five times in these three verses, Luke records that they saw this. In verse 9, after they heard Jesus say these things, as they were looking, number one, he was lifted up in a cloud, took him out of their sight, number two. Verse 10, while they were still gazing, number three, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why are you standing there looking, number four, into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come again as the same way you saw, number five, him go into heaven. They heard Jesus' words. They heard the testimony of these two heavenly witnesses. And they saw him go five times. Again, so why the ascension? Right? I mean, why? Why the ascension? I mean, Jesus could have just disappeared, been gone. That was it. Why the ascension? Well, the resurrected Jesus had spent the last 40 days appearing to as many as 500 with many proofs showing that he had indeed raised, he was assuring them, he was teaching them, he was speaking about the kingdom of God. And he wants them to know that he is not going to appear in another day or two. It's like that movie, uh, P.S. I Love You, you know, she's getting all those notes and he finally has to tell her that the la- in the last note there's not going to be any more. That's what Jesus is doing here, right? He could have just disappeared but he doesn't want them to keep waiting for the next time. He doesn't want them to fall into doubt, just wondering where he's gone. Did everything that he says, is it a lie? Can we trust him? And in this final act of love, before he begins his ascension ministry into heaven, he wants again to assure them of who he is and to promise them that he will indeed come again. And the ascension did just that. It proved to them that he is indeed the Son of God, that he ascended into heaven, and it promised them, it assures them that he will indeed come again. The ascension is a promise. He will return but it is also a prompt to continue his mission. Look at the words of these two heavenly witnesses. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking into heaven? It's not your business to know the times and seasons or to stand there gazing at the sky. You are to bear witness to Christ. And that is what they do. And now suddenly, these once timid, these once doubt-filled, these once terrified disciples who were huddling together in the dark have become bold. They worshipped him. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They were continually in the temple blessing God. They were praying. They were making preparations. And when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they became bold witnesses to Christ in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very end of the earth. It happened. And they did that because they received the power of the promised Holy Spirit and they trusted in that promise, that ascension promise. He is coming again. And from that time and season, 
to the return of Christ that God has fixed by his own authority, we have been empowered to witness to the mission of Christ. Same thing. So as we go, let's go with this certainty. The kingdom of God will be proclaimed in power until he comes again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have not left us without a perfect testimony of your purposes and plans for us. Lord, we admit that we are weak. We admit that we are foolish. We admit that we are filled with doubt. It's easy to question why you do what you do, but Lord, you do tell us. Help us to see the glory of your kingdom, the spiritual, universal, gradual kingdom that will come again at the return of Christ. Help us to long for it more than anything else. Lord, give us the power of your spirit that emboldens us to trust in you, to obey you faithfully, but to do what you've called us to do, to bear witness to your name. Lord, most importantly, we pray that you would give us a big vision for Jesus, that we would truly see him for who he is, that he would not just be king of our hearts, but we would see him as king over all, and with confidence in his lordship, his love shown through his sacrifice. May we be made bold, not fearless, but bold, to go and tell others about it, both here and there and everywhere. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.